Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome in to another edition of the Doyle and Derek podcast here at IndyStar.com. I'm your host, Derek Schultz, but the star of the show, as always, is the award-winning, always interesting, always handsome, Greg Doyle. I'm working on that intro every single week. I, I'm just adding new stuff to it as we go along. Yeah, well, it's all pretty good, but um, you're the one calling tortoise races. I don't know how <laughs> I don't know how I could be the star if you're the one actually giving play-by-play of tortoises racing i mean as a writer probably the pinnacle is i don't know writing a feature on the super bowl or something like that uh for a broadcaster clearly the pinnacle is calling the greatest tortoise race in the world the zoopolis 500 which i was privileged enough to do earlier this afternoon at the zoo it was a lot of fun is it over yet or are you like coming over here doing the podcast and going back because they're just hitting the first turn where are they it, it's so funny because they had they had uh, to give you a little peek behind the curtain they had mapped out an hour of time and and jake my my former co-host and i jake query and i had to um you know MC the event and while the race was going on they said look the tortoises aren't usually super motivated so it takes a long time for them to, for one of them to actually win this damn thing so we need you to talk to our zoo expert here, uh, Casey, and we need you to, you know, interview this person and talk about, you know, tortoise facts and what we've got going on at the zoo. But one of the tortoises named Ed, after Ed Carpenter, just zoomed down that ramp and went after it and went after that lettuce salad there at the end. And um, they said that, that he set a new track record. That's how quick it was. Yeah, but I, we're going to need to test Ed for steroids because nowadays... <laughs> I mean, nobody You're wins right. a race overwhelmingly. Now, I mean, you cheat. The, they cheated. Yeah. The Tour de France guys cheat. The tur- turtles cheat. Who doesn't cheat? It, it's just so cutthroat. Um, I'm looking forward to the E60 on the, the gross underbelly of tortoise racing around the world, <laughs> particularly in Madagascar, <laughs> where it, it's just very dirty. Um, we got a lot to talk about today because we actually have playoff basketball to discuss. We've got Colts camp to talk about as well. Uh, what did you want to start with? Because you've been... You've just been hammering out our Indy 500 stuff, cult stuff, Pacer stuff, just everything. Yeah, I know. Well, I, I want to start with the turtles racing. I, I think that's more interesting <laughs> than anything I've done. And also, yeah. just your growing, you do have a growing media enterprise uh, at work here. I mean, you are a mogul. You're becoming a mogul. Yeah, enterprise isn't really a term that I'm comfortable with. I like to look at it as an empire. That's, um, the, I, I, that's the word I meant. Yeah. Enterprise <laughs> came out, I'm like, did I mean to say enterprise? I didn't mean to say that. Empire's the word. Keep going. No, Schultz Media LLC has been established, and uh, business is booming, my man. Um, you know, a lot of that has to do with this being race week, and we have a we've had a long-standing partnership with the American Dairy Association of Indiana, and of course, this is this is their week because the chugging of the milk and, and Victory Circle and all of that. But um, but yeah, things are uh, things are going pretty well. It, it's weird because 
you know, two weeks from now, it's September, right? It doesn't feel like it should be, the summer should be ending already, but here we are. And I am glad that we have, even though I, I don't really know what to make of these bubble playoffs, I am glad that we have playoff basketball to talk about. Oh, for sure. And and we got upsets to talk about, and both number one seeds lost. And there, there is no home court advantage, obviously. And, and, of course, Portland's not a one seed. I mean, Portland's not an eight seed. That's oh, not yeah. typical. They're, they're not typical. And I can't make sense of Milwaukee losing – um, I can't make sense of the Pacers uh, just having, I mean, just no luck at all. They, they, nothing goes right for the Pacers. Not, not anything, not ever. Old Depot's got a bad eye now. It's just nothing goes right. Yeah, I agree that they've been bit by the bad luck bug. But also, Greg, I just thought yesterday was kind of, I, I know they were competitive. It was a one point game entering the fourth quarter. I just felt like they were kind of flat yesterday. Like, I, I think for this team, if they're going to have any chance even to make this a competitive series against Miami, much less win it, they're really going to have to fight tooth and nail. And I just didn't really feel like I saw that in game one. I didn't see, like, the – not to get into the coach speak, but, like, the, the toughness aspect of it of what you expect from playoff basketball. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. Um, the, the game lacked had it certainly lacked some juice. I don't know what that is. Now, I mean, Troy – TJ Warren, when he's your best player and he's been their best player in Orlando, he's not a fiery guy. I mean, unless Jimmy Butler gets completely haywire and then Warren fires back. But he's a very smooth, silky smooth. I mean, he, I don't know. He doesn't he doesn't raise his I don't think his blood pressure goes up at all when he's shooting a three to win it. You know, he just he has no conscience. And so anyway, he I think sometimes when that guy is your dominant player, maybe it doesn't look as feisty as it might really be but inside the lines. I wanted to the thing I noticed yesterday about that game, two things, both negative, but, you know, they lost. And so I think it's hopefully that's allowed. Um, one is I, I wrote about this one in depth, Miles Turner. And he just, you know, wasn't, I mean, he just does what he does. And what he does is, is go through is, the motions. Well, what he does <laughs> is avoid going to the rim at all costs. and would rather shoot yeah. a 15 footer, even if he's guarded by a small guy. But I also, I just have to wonder, you know, we, and this is treading on dangerous ground. I get it, but um, Oladipo shows up to the game, playoff game, playoff opener, and and Grant, he's going to play hard no matter what. But wh- why is he wearing shoes? Wh- why is he flirting with Disney, trying to get into a movie? Why is he using the playoffs to further his acting career? Can can we just play basketball? And and I, I don't. In a in a vac in a vacuum, it's not a big deal. It's really in a vacuum. That's not a big deal. But we're not in a vacuum. We've got a guy that is starting to act a little bit weird and starting to do things kind of strange. And I actually looked at his Twitter page yesterday, and he described himself as a mogul. He's he's not an NBA player. He's a mogul. He sees himself as a singer, designer, basketball player. Now he wants to be an actor, and I just. Yeah, I'd like the guy that says, this is my city. I'd like that guy back and, and feel like all he cares about is winning basketball games for this city and state. And I don't, I, don't, I don't get that feeling anymore with him. I think there are some fans that agree with that, that maybe they feel like the attitude for Oladipo has changed a little bit. I do think part of it, Greg, is just the fact that this is just what, this is just what we have with this newer generation of NBA players. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that they're more uh, – 
focused on how they present themselves, their brand, the fashion. Remember, remember a couple of years ago, Russell Westbrook started wearing all that outrageous stuff at press conferences. And, and at the time it was, oh my God, what's he doing? And now all these guys do that. You know, it's kind of like what Allen Iverson was 20 years ago. Allen Iverson, his look was shocking to people at the turn of the century. And now you don't even bat an eyelash at that stuff. If you've got a tattooed up sleeve or whatever else, people are just like, yeah, whatever. You know, you know, kind of times change and attitudes change towards that stuff. Um, I, I want to get to Oladipo here. To, let's get to Turner first because yeah. I don't want to make it all about one guy. The Pacers are not the better team in this series. They're, uh, they're lacking from a talent standpoint. They don't have their two all-stars. Uh, they're lacking from a coaching standpoint. No offense to Nate, but Spolster is one of the best that there is in the game, and there's a gap there. But to me, the whole key, if the Pacers are going to have a chance in this series, Miles Turner is going to have to play at like an all-star level. And he was just awful yesterday. There's just no other way around it. Um, you know, nine points. He missed every three-pointer that he took. I can live with the fact, Greg, that he's never going to be like a banger. He's not want to go inside like that. He's not Steven Adams. But at the same time, he's got to contribute somewhere. And, and yesterday's effort to me was just unacceptable. Well, especially when there's mismatches. Now, when, when they play the 76ers, if he's going to be matched with Embiid, it's just not going to go right for him. No, there's no think, chance. Right. But that's, I, I think that's, it's not okay, okay. But you have to accept that. You know, sure. Embiid is a physical freak and, and it's just not, it's, it's not a good matchup. The Heat are a good matchup for him. They have, Bam Adebayo is a strong guy and a fast guy and all that, but he's two inches shorter than Miles Turner and weighs about the same, but two inches shorter. So at the very least, he ought to be matched up equally. But Turner doesn't want to mess with him. And even when Bam switches off, because he'll go guard anybody, and now Miles is down there with Tyler Tyler Hero on him or somebody like that, he's fading away and, and shooting crappy shots. Um, and to the point that in the, in the third, fourth quarter, I was watching, and Nate actually commented on it afterwards, his teammates weren't throwing him the ball. He, he had mismatches, and maybe he wasn't demanding it, but they like that. We've seen this movie, and uh, we're not throwing it to you anymore because you're just going to shoot an 18 footer falling out of bounds like you're Rick Mount, and you're not. And I just think something else that they, that, you know, Turner lacks and the whole team lacks is that say what you want about Jimmy Butler. Like, I don't know if I'd want Jimmy Butler on my team because you never really know what you're going to get. But when Jimmy Butler is locked in, he'll rip your freaking heart out. Like he, that, that dude is a killer when, when he's locked in and he really wants to, he'll end you. And I just don't know if the Pacers really have that guy. I think Oladipo uh, in, in the clutch, if you want to call it that, you know, late game situations, you feel pretty good about where he is. Um, you know, Malcolm Brogdon's a very talented guy. I think Turner's a talented guy. I think TJ Warren's a talented guy, but I, I don't know if any of those guys are the, you know, rip your spinal cord through your throat and out your nostrils type player that, that Jimmy Butler is. Yeah, the Pacers, the last guy they had like that, that that wanted to be like that was Lance Stevenson. And he just, you know, he wasn't good enough, at least skilled enough yeah. offensively, but he wanted to. You got to give him credit. I mean, he wanted to be that guy. He had mm -hmm. the uh, he had the testicles to try to be that guy. Miles um, Turner doesn't really care uh, about that. And what's interesting about Turner is that he plays physically on defense. It's not that he's a powder puff. It's not that he's afraid, afraid to bang. He... He blocks shots on defense. He goes for it. On defense, he's roaring. He's roaring. But on offense, he's just some big Euro forward who just wants to shoot threes. And there's, there's a time and place for that, but that place wasn't yesterday. But by the way, um, you said something in passing about Spolster, and I know he has a good rep, and, and he deserves it. Um, but you, you look at this, this Heat roster, 
you look at the Pacers roster, even at full strength, I like the Heat roster better. The Pacers oh, me roster. Too. Okay, yeah, you like no, me too. Okay, yeah. so the Heat roster is better. Yes. And the Pacers have been without tons of guys all year long, and they had a better record than the Heat. So I'm just not – as good as I think Spolster is, I know he's got a good rep and all that, I guess my bigger point is I just don't think Nate gets enough credit. Even that sentence you just said, and I don't think you're down on Nate, but I just don't think Nate gives enough credit. He's not flashy. He doesn't do flashy coaching things. Whatever those are, he doesn't do them. But all he does – the thing about Nate that I want to point out is, and when people say well, we got to change coaches, at what point do you look at Nate and say he underachieved with what he had? He should have gotten more out of that team, whether it's on a yearly basis. In four years here, there's not been a single year where you say that team had more than X number of wins in it. Not once has that happened. Not, and this year didn't happen at all either. No, you're right. But you would say the same thing about Frank Vogel. And, that, and he still wasn't brought back. You know, I, I just think, Greg, sometimes in the NBA, it, it just gets stale. And I'm not saying Nate is stale right now. You know, they extended him, so he's at least going to be here next season. But I, I think at some point, it's not that, you know, Frank Vogel ever did a bad job. It was just time to move on. And I, I wonder if the Pacers will reach that point with Nate McMillan, even if he doesn't actually. Because I agree with you. I don't think that the Pacers have actually underachieved. And I, they're a huge underdog in this matchup against Miami. Um, you know, Miami's got way more depth than they do, and they've got all their star players at their disposal, which the Pacers don't. So, um, you know, we're asking Nate to make uh, chicken salad out of chicken bleep in a way. But, you know, you just wonder if after five years or six years, it's just time automatically to move on to the next guy. You know, this whole thing about being stale, I know Larry Bird's the one that really got that in our consciousness when he fired Vogel and said, that Red Arbach told him the coaches get old after like three years. You start lo- they lose their voice after three years. Uh, and Larry Bird grew up in an era where players didn't switch teams. So a coach that was there for three years would coach the same 12 guys perhaps all three years. Vogel, when he was fired, had a team that, that I think only had one guy left from three years earlier. And McMillan's team, like this team is turned upside down almost every year. Yeah, pretty right. Just upside down. And so I just think we need to define our terms. When we say a coach, a coach's voice gets stale, does that mean the front office is tired of them? Does that mean the fans are tired of them? Because it can't be the players because these guys weren't here for the most part. You can pick out a Miles Turner here or there, but for the most part, these guys weren't here three years ago. So I'm not sure who's getting tired of hearing that voice. I think a lot of it has to do with the fan base because they're the ones that are around. And if they feel like you're happy just churning out 45-ish win seasons and getting bounced in the first round of the playoffs, then they become apathetic. And that apathy goes over into watching games and buying tickets and buying gear and all that. So that that's where I think that fatigue comes from. But I will okay, say this, I, Greg. I, I, I don't want to make this series – I think it's unfair to – you know, I'll call out Nate for a game-to-game if there's something that he does or doesn't do that I think is a mistake, whatever. But this series in general, the Pacers are not supposed to win this series. If they can just make this a long series and a competitive series, then I'll be pleasantly surprised. So I, I don't want to turn this into, you know, Pacers lose, let's say, in five games. Oh, well, Nate McMillan, first round Nate. Like, I'm not looking at this series in that way. But, you know, 16 years or whatever it is, even if on paper they were the underdog in a lot of those series, the fans notice that. And they think that the franchise is being complacent if they're cool just continuing to keep this guy and extend it. Do you know what franchise has the longest active streak of playoff appearances? 
Uh, it was Portland forever, but I think they missed a couple of years ago. And it's not San Antonio anymore, right? Uh, right. I don't, I don't there, there's a there's a new champion this year. Yeah. There's a know. new. Yeah. It's it's this team. It's the Pacers. Is um, it really? Something like 21, 22 in a row. They with the Spurs being out, the Pacers now have the longest running. I mean, I think I saw that on Fox Sports. Were they? Well, out they left? they they missed the playoffs in. 15 the year Paul George swear, broke his leg they you're right the, they did the I swear yeah. I saw that on Fox Sports Indiana I swear I saw oh man, that, maybe they missed that they missed they missed by one game they were the nine seed and they were in entering the final day they I think they needed to win and they needed Brooklyn to lose and they won but Brooklyn won so they they missed the playoffs and thank God I didn't write that because I I was watching the game and I saw that <laughs> scroll up and I took notes on it and thought I'm gonna write that later and uh, didn't get around to writing it. So never mind. Let me let me dramatic pause and not ask that question. But let me say one more thing about this topic. Is I'm not a big believer in, in the will of the people listening to it. If, if you're chasing excellence, you know, because what you're saying basically, and I hear, and I, I you're, you're right. The fan base can and will and does get t- tired of. Maybe they were tired of Vogel. Maybe they're tired of Nate. That can happen. They're not hitting shots. They're not grabbing rebounds. They're not defending anybody. They've. Yeah, they need to support the team, and, and that does matter. And if the building's empty, okay, then you're talking. But it's not. The, the attendance is not great, but I don't see any correlation to Nate with that. All I'm saying is the will of the people has led this country to where we are right now. This country, because we're supposed to, we listened to the will. Well, actually, we didn't. We didn't listen to the will of the people, but the Electoral College did what it did. We are where we are, and the people put us here. Sometimes we need someone else to say, you know what, people, you're probably not right about this one. I'm going to keep that coach or I'm going to do something else at that position in the government, whatever. You're not wrong. No, I'm I not just wrong. Think that, I'm I not think wrong. that the Pacers, um, I'm not saying cave to fans, but at the same time, the Pacers, I think unlike the Colts and really unlike any NFL team, because NFL teams, whatever, like it's, it's the, it's King Kong, right? It's the big gorilla. It's, it's, it, it, it dwarfs everything else in American sports. But in the Pacers' case, they are just continually fighting a perception problem. They were fighting a perception problem in the wake of the brawl. They, they fought this perception problem of that, oh, hey, we're like the little engine that could, but we have this clearly defined glass ceiling. And, and people, I, I just worry about people checking out. But you're right. Like, you know, I, I don't want Kevin Pritchard to, if he's making a list of, of the decisions that he's going to make, I don't want priority one to be the fans. I want Kevin, Kevin Pritchard's a smart guy. I want him to do what he thinks is right. But I do think that that is an element of, of what's out there. And, you know, I wonder if bird was thinking along those lines too, but you make a great point about the roster transition and, and all of that. I mean, the roster in the last five years, Greg has flipped over two different times, three different times. Yeah. And there's something about, um, you know, cliches become cliches because they're, they're true. I mean, a, a lot of the, most of the time. That's why they're a cliche. It's so true. It gets said a ton. Well, what you're talking about is, it, it, you know, the fan base here, it's it's almost a cliche that, that, that they might look at the – it is a cliche. They look at the Pacers as, well, it's just, you know, the little engine that could, and they're trying hard, and they're happy to get the playoffs and blah, 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 blah. Um, but that's because it's all true. That's because the deck is stacked against teams like the Pacers and teams like the Bucks and the Bucks vi- visioned into, lucked into, whatever – Giannis, they saw something that no one else saw, at least in the first 10 or 12 picks, wherever he went in that year in the draft. But that's what it takes. It takes a generationally unusually great player to make a city like Milwaukee a player in the NBA. It's just what it takes. And the Pacers haven't – they almost kind of had a guy like that in Paul George, but he just never really cared enough. Um, so, anyway, the point is they are that team. They are the little engine that could. 
and they're maximizing pretty much what they can do. And I think it's just – now, I wouldn't say this about the Colts because it's different. Parity is different in the NFL, and, and players don't care as much about the city they, they go to as opposed to the team. They want to win a Super Bowl. In the NBA, they, yeah, they want to win, but they want to play with their buddies, and their buddies want to play in fun cities, and so they don't think the city's fun. So I just think to ignore that, and you're not, but I know people listening are, to ignore the realities of what this franchise is up against just because we're sick of talking about it is uh, wrong. Just like in this country, there's a lot of things going on that we're just kind of sick of talking about. There's just, you know, there's some there's some tweets that are just so ridiculous, but we talk about ridiculous tweets every day. Let's just not talk about them. No, let's talk about them. Let's keep talking about them until someone changes those ridiculous tweets. So uh, anyway, we, what we can't do is let fatigue beat us down. That's why the coronavirus, we're not beating it. The fatigue of it is beating us down, and we just want to go out and have fun, damn it. And Notre Dame students... The fatigue of being on campus and not going out to parties. They just can't they just live their life? Yeah. Well, yeah, you can. You can't go back to class, but you can live your life. You too, Michigan State. You too, UNC Chapel Hill. Sure, you're bored. Go live your life. <laughs> but don't think you can go back to class because that's not the way the world works. So, yeah, Man, I, get, I get sick of fatigue as an excuse. Can you tell? Things might have changed, but when I was at Notre Dame visiting buddies, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, Notre Dame, at least compared to IU, Notre Dame was sleepy. Like, if they're having problems at Notre Dame with partying and, and COVID breakouts, then we've got a real issue because there are far greater party schools than, than Notre Dame. <laughs> are you aware that uh, the ACC, according, and I mean, this is not me, but ACC reporters are saying on Twitter that sources say, ACC schools are considering, you know, sending kids home. Yeah, I saw. But that. putting football team their their athletes in a bubble. Yes, I, I just you wonder how much of that is is going to be. You know, we're trying to keep this facade of amateurism up, right, Greg? And right. suddenly we're separate. It's it's safe for it's not safe for our general student body, but it's safe for athletes. Like it just sounds like you're really putting that at risk in in my eyes. Well, not only that, but you're you're basically saying is we've got students and we've got athletes and they're totally different. And we know they're totally different. Only the only the schools in Tibble have wanted to say they're not. But if you're gonna say they're totally different, if you're gonna if you're gonna say students, you guys can go home and, and be with your parents and your friends or whatever, you know, don't don't go crazy, but you actually can live a life. But youth um, eighty five basketball players and thirteen basketball players, you guys are gonna we're gonna put you in a hotel just like the NBA does. And you're going to get room service, and you're going to have classes on your computers, and you're not going to see anybody for three months. You're going to basically sacrifice three or four months of your entire life because we would like to make some money off you playing football. And if that's the case, then you got to pay them. You you, you simply yeah. can't have both ways. What you can't do is say we're going to, you guys we're going to bubble you up like pros. Only you're not going to get paid. You're just going to have to sort again give away all your all your time all of your time to us. You know, the NCAA used to have a rule. They still do. I think it's 25 hours a week you can practice, something like that. You're going to put them in a bubble, and basically 24 hours a day, every day, they're devoting to the sports team. They're devoting their entire life to the sports team, and that's not okay if you're not going to pay them. No, and, and some people are like, well, it's just like it's just like winter break. Well, no, it's not because no, it's if, not. I'm, if I'm the wide receiver on the football team and I'm on winter break and after practice I want to go drive home and see my mom, I can't. In this bubble situation, you can't you can't leave. You you can't you can't go see your girlfriend, right? I mean, I, I don't. I, I, 
it's unprecedented. I, I agree with you, Greg. I just don't think that they can get away with it. We all know that amateurism is a total sham in major college sports anyway. But if we are going to keep that facade alive, uh, they, they can't separate the students and, and the athletes um, and try to get away with it in my eyes. It's not enough to know it's a sham because some people would say, yeah, we know it's a sham. What's the difference? It's not enough to know it if we're not going to actually follow through on it and then pay them. It's not, enough, right. for, yeah. it's not enough for Greg Doyle and Derek Schultz to say, we, we know what's going on. That's not good enough. Because that, that left tackle for North Carolina is still, you know, not getting paid to be the left tackle at North Carolina, even though we all know all he is is a left tackle. Well, it's not good enough unless you're going to pay him like that. Because you can't have it. You just, it's got to be It's got to be both ways in this case. It's got to be we all know what's going on, and there's got to be follow-through. Or don't do it. Unlike college athletes, the Colts are paid, and they have their own bubble situation going on right now at training camp at their facility. They finally let media in a couple of days ago. So, Greg, you and, and the rest of the crew got your first look at the 2020 Colts. Um, any observations? And, and, look, I know you take this with a grain of salt because sometimes guys look great in camp. And then, you know, remember Deion Kane, And then they get on the field and you're like, whoa, this isn't the same guy that I just saw. But what jumped out to you in the first couple of days that you were able to see of Colts camp? Deron Carter, Deion Kane, and this year's guy either is or isn't Paris Campbell. Uh, and, and maybe Paris will be what we think he's supposed to be. You know, I mean, he he is faster than everybody else, and he does seem to have pretty good hands. And, I mean, there's no reason why he can't be great. But he's the guy that now everybody, wow, look at Paris Campbell. Okay, that's great. I, I mean, I'd like to see it in a game, for sure. But you're asking me, like, so I don't, who's good, who's bad, who cares? Because um, it all matters on Sundays in September. It doesn't matter right now. But what I noticed <laughs> – and what, what interests me is uh, Chase McLaughlin uh, appears, and I, I say this as someone who has this, he's, he's the ADD kicker. He's the PK ADD uh, because he can't be still, and he doesn't even focus on kicking. I don't know when he practices because I watched him for two hours, and he did everything but kick. Meanwhile, Rodrigo Blankenship is a terminator. He's a PKT, P- place kicker, terminator. All he wants to do is kick. Swing his leg, practice, get ready. Part of that also, although Chase is not Vinatieri, but Chase was here last year, halfway through the year, and so you had Chase, Luke Sanchez, the the Luke Rhodes, I'm sorry, the holder, and Rodrigo Sanchez, Roberto Sanchez. Good lord, um, you had those three guys hanging out together the whole time, and you had Blankenship, poor little Blankenship, on the side, kind of not really part of the crew, and so he's trying to get better at football while the three guys in the clique are just kind of hanging out. I noticed that, and I noticed that Philip Rivers uh, bounces on his feet. That's kind of my insight. <laughs> <laughs> That's good analysis. I, uh, I'm not trying to be a pessimist because I think the Colts should be favored to win the AFC South because I think there's I, I think Tennessee caught lightning in a bottle. I think they're Jacksonville from a couple of years ago. I think they're going to their pumpkin. Uh, their carriage is going to turn into a pumpkin. Jacksonville on paper is one of the worst teams in the league. And Houston is just hard to take seriously because of their front office and some of the, you know, the talent that they lost. Um, but I just wonder if we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves with with this Colts team. Um, I, I don't disagree that they're talented and all of that, but like I, I don't think of them as a Super Bowl contender uh, really whatsoever. And you say, well, Schultz, if you think they're a playoff team, then I'm, I'm, they're automatically a contender. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you can argue that, but um, unless Rivers is better than just okay, I, I don't view them on the same par as, as Baltimore or Kansas City, and that's just in the AFC. You know, uh, clearly, clearly we need to see Rivers. we got to see what he is. I'm going to I'm going to say this with the assumption that he has not fallen off a cliff that he's at least as good as last year and, and probably a little bit better than what he showed last year. Um 
I do see a Super Bowl contender. I, I don't see a Super Bowl favorite, but I do see a team that that got a lot better this offseason. Not a little bit better. They got a lot better this offseason. And I'm totally with you on on Jack on uh, I'm sorry on Houston on Tennessee. That's just a that was their quarterback still is is it Tannehill? Is that who it is? Yeah, he just you know he he just went he played with his hair on fire. I mean, right. he had an unbelievable ten final ten games, however much it was when they benched Mariota. Yeah, exactly. I mean that that was, I mean he, he was uh, I mean Joe Flacco light. That's all he is. Joe Flacco. I mean way light, like watered down. Joe Flacco light had a good run, got himself paid. It's not going to happen again. The Colts are the Colts are really good, um, and not because I saw them. At practice, they sure did catch the ball in practice. I don't care about the practice. I'm just saying, <laughs> on paper, what I saw in the offseason, this team got a lot better. And I still am a big believer in Frank Reich. I think he's a really, really good coach. And they're not going to have the kicking issues they had a year ago, which cost them two or three games. And they're not going to have the quarterback issue in the fourth quarter, which cost them two or three games. And you add that up, and they got, that's 11 or 12 wins right there they could have had last year with uh, much better improvements at those yeah. two positions. They did it. And it's amazing how much better the front seven and the offensive line is compared to where it was two or three years ago. Um, and, and But I still think really what they were lacking last year is that they just didn't have any playmakers on offense. And we talked about Jacoby Brissett. Jacoby Brissett's not a playmaker, obviously. But everybody else, I mean, you know, when Zach Paschal is your, your top guy because Hilton was banged up, then you're in trouble because God loves Zach Paschal. But that's not a playmaker in today's NFL. They need Campbell to be a playmaker. They need Jonathan Taylor to be a playmaker. They need Pittman to be a playmaker. Um, so I think on paper they look great, but, you know, we kind of did this last year with, with Kane and Campbell and, and that receiving core and, and Funchess, and we were talking about how great the receiving core was. Well, hell, it, it took until like week four to realize, oh, my God, they're in real trouble at that spot because of the injuries and because of everything, the ineffectiveness of some of those guys. Yeah, I don't know that I believe in the receivers yet, but I certainly have hope. I, mean, I, I need to see Pittman, but I've got a lot of hope for that guy. I need to see Paris Campbell. But I've always had a lot. Of, I've never checked out on him. He's only been here a year and one week. <laughs> so I, he still could be really good. Uh, Pittman could be really good. Hilton needs to stay healthy. You know who I like just looking at him? Um, and I have no idea You know what kind of player he's going to be. But Darius Fountain, who broke his leg so horribly yeah. last year. You know, he, he's running around out there. And, he, and he, he looks so big. And I think he wears number 10. He looks so big that I thought, oh, is that, is, is that Pittman? Let me see. What, what number Hold on, I got my roster. I got my roster right here. Yeah, okay. Fountain's ten. Uh, Pittman, I guess, is uh, is eighty six. Well, I saw ten run around and thought, well, that must be Pittman because that guy's enormous. And it was it's only Darius Fountain, and he's only listed at six two two ten, which is still pretty big. Anyway, that guy physically blows me away. Darius Fountain physically blows me away. Now he's got to hold on to the ball, but uh, anyway, I, I like what they have. But you know what you mentioned is you said they need playmakers. Well, they and you mentioned two guys off top right away. You mentioned Pittman. And you mentioned Taylor, and those guys are new. And uh, and Taylor especially, I mean, he's going to just – he's Marlon Mack's real good, and Taylor's right there with them. The Colts have two of the top, probably top ten running backs in the NFL this year, is my guess. Wow, really? Top ten? Are we going to say Mack's a top ten running back? Uh, yeah, I think he's right on the fringe of that. Uh, okay, then wh- wherever Mack is, top okay. ten, top 12, top 15, but you, but whatever you, Mack but, is – the reason I reacted that way is because you think Taylor is going to be a top 10 running back too as a rookie. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 He's oh, wow. not like, he's not, you know, Wisconsin's backs get a bad rep and well, I'm not sure they get a bad one. They, they have a bad rep, um, but they don't look like Jonathan Taylor. You know, they, they were either short and heavy and Ron Danish or they were little bitty and, and, and third downish like James White. 
Jonathan Taylor is a whole different cat. I mean, he's he's not like anybody else. I mean, he's not he's a different cat in the NFL. You don't see guys weighing two thirty running a four three forty. You don't. And when you do see him, they're in the end zone eighty yards away. So he's a special guy. And behind this line, he's going to get a lot of damage done. And and he's not he might not even be the best back on the team because Marlon Mack. We all know how good he is. That's what I'm saying. They've got two luxury backs right right now, and a great offensive line. That has no depth, but up front, you know, their five starters are really great. You know, God, God yeah, but we have to see uh, Raven out there or somebody like that. But they'll play every snap, every every game like they did last year because that's just totally normal in the NFL, isn't it? The offensive line yeah, always plays right, all yeah. five. <laughs> that wasn't a fluke at all. Um, let's get into the, the 500. It's, it is race week. It doesn't feel like race week, but it is. And you're going to be there on Sunday, and you were there for qualifying weekend. Um, what a great storyline uh, to have Marco Andretti on pole. And, and that's a guy that – you know, really, I thought early in his career, Greg, and I know that some of this predates you being here, I thought was kind of cocky. And, and I think some people had the vibe, you know, born on third, thinks he hit a triple sort of thing. I think going through the struggles that he's gone through, he hasn't won a race in nine years, I think humbled him. And there's a reason why he's one of the most popular drivers out there. He's just a real likable dude now. And um, and I was thrilled for him. That, that was great to see that emotion. And, and you wrote about it in the star, of course. When I when I got hired, um one of the things I remember is, is hearing about, about Marco that I won't, I won't like him. You won't like him. He's not likable. He, he is what you said, born on third base, thinks he did a triple, not very good, all that stuff. And so that's kind of been my, I mean, that's just what I was told. And you know how first impressions and things like that are, you just, if all you know is what you're told, that's kind of like in the back of your head. So I've kind of thought that's who he was. And maybe that is who he was for my first couple of years here. I wouldn't know. I really didn't talk to him. But um, he's a lot more likable now. He's been through it. He's been through the ringer. You know, there, there's a comparison to be made, a clear comparison to be made between him and Dale Earnhardt Jr. Just in that they were both born with that great name, started early, um, and and then what do you do with that? And Earnhardt won a lot more than Marco won, but Earnhardt's just such a gentle, sweet guy. You know, and 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 we'll never know if he had lost the Daytona 500 by a millionth of a second at age 19. If he had done that. And then, and then has gone nine years without winning. Maybe he's a surly jerk, but Dale Earnhardt's been winning, and he's a sweet, sweet guy. Marco's not been winning. He's not been a sweet, sweet guy, but he does seem much more normal and likable. And I will tell you that the paddock loves him. I mean, they they love him, and I, that the paddock is full of good, decent guys. And so when that group of guys really, really likes you, you're probably a really good guy yourself. Yeah, I, I, just, I don't think he was the sweetest guy at 23, but I think he's a really sweet guy at 33. Uh, that's just kind of how I, I, and, and, you know, people change. I mean, hell, I had a, a tongue ring and a backwards visor and, and all that when I was 20. So if you're the same person at 20 that you are at 40, then you're probably in trouble. That's a great point. Yeah. Marco, and think about, think about being 19 years old and the Andretti curse is, is a thing. Even then everybody knows about the Andretti curse. Cause your dad, your granddad, you're 19 and you have the 500 you're going as far as you know, you're about to win it. I mean, you're about to win the thing, and it gets taken from you, just taken from you by Hornish. And he was a jerk when he got out of that car. He was angry, and he was saying angry things. And and first impressions, as, as I said earlier, last that was everybody's first impression of Marco Andretti. And it wasn't good, but you, I almost can't blame him, given who he is, given what his family's history is, how old he was, to have that race taken from him like that. Of course he's going to come out of the – out of the cockpit, petulant and mad. And that's been held against him for 10 years, and he hadn't helped it along the way. But first impressions are hard. But anyway, you're, he's changed. He's 33 now. He's married. 
he bought his childhood home. He's a, he seems like a nice guy. He'd be fun to root for. The problem is, is that Scott Dixon's just too good. Scott Dixon's too good, and uh, I don't see who's going to beat Scott. I mean, Marco, I'd love the story, but Dixon's going to win the race. Yeah, I was going to ask you, because Dixon is my pick as well, not to be super lame and, and do exactly what you're doing, but I, I just think. And, and then another thing, Greg, and I kind of did this with Will Power. I was convinced that Will Power will eventually win the Indianapolis 500. So I just picked him every, every year, and he ran into terrible luck every single year. And then finally, the year I don't pick him, he wins the 500. Scott Dixon is one of the greatest to ever do this. Forget the eras. He's one of the greatest open-wheel racers in history. And I just think it's only right that he adds a second Indianapolis 500 at some point, whether it's this year or next year or whatever else. Yeah, and he's he's got the car. You know, they the, his car actually reached the highest speed of anybody out there over the week. Um, and he probably would have qualified first. Uh, I, I'm sorry, he wouldn't have won the wouldn't have won the pole. But on on Saturday qualifying to get ready for the fast nine shootout, he had the fastest car on Saturday and literally stopped because he didn't want to qualify last he wanted to go in the middle of the pack for whatever reason so i guess he didn't want to get too hot he was thinking about that so anyway he's got the car we know he's got the skill we know he's unflappable marco has the car might have the best car out there but i think scott might dixon might have the best car but either way but marco hasn't until until you've won those 500 run those 500 miles um won that race won any race in the last decade it's really kind of hard to say you know i think he's going to win and i think i'm going to predict marco's going to win this this week i've got to predict it for the star because I really want that story to happen. I want to write that yeah. story. So I think that'll be my prediction because my heart says it's going to be Marco. But if you took my heart uh, out of my body and just said, hey, brain only, I mean, you got to go Dixon. Yeah, it would be hilarious. We talked so much about the Hondas and, and all that and the Andretti drivers to see like Pagano win it from 25 or one of the Penske Chevys just has a great day because you're right. I mean, the, the car, having a great car is 50% of it. The other 50% of it is just getting really, really lucky. I mean, that's really what it's about. You, you have to, you know, one bad pit stop or debris or you get caught up into something, you know, so many things can happen in such a long race. Uh, right. Check out Greg's latest columns. Pacers game one from yesterday, of course. Also sights and sounds from Colts camp. Marco on pole. Uh, Renus VK, who I got the chance to meet yesterday. What an interesting dude and um, and quite a talent at 19 years old. Speaking of yeah. the Chevys, he was the only one to crash the Fast 9 party. He is, by the way, the next Joseph Newgarden. He, he's going to be the guy – that rises up and swallows up something whole. He's going to be really, really good. I think that he's only 19. It's not going to happen this year, probably. But that guy's going to be real good someday. It was cool because we did the fastest rookie luncheon with the American Dairy Association of Indiana, and, and uh, he brought his parents on stage. And it's just great to see. Aww. You know what I mean? It's great to see somebody for that to be a really big deal for them, to be the fastest rookie and to really embrace it. And um, he's got a bright, bright future. No question yeah. about that. Check out Greg uh, and all the other writers at the Star and subscribe IndyStar.com. Also, the Indie Star app, of course, and we'll be back with more next week for another edition of Doyle and Derek. Until then, Greg, enjoy the race. I'll see you then. And that one flew by at 240 miles an hour. I can't believe it's over. <laughs> nice talking to you, Derek, always, and seeing your, your chipper little Rodrigo Blankenship face. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula.
Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.